My name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. Last week, we had a whale of a time discussing inheritance in the Merovingian state, and I hope our discussion gave some context to many of the political happenings we've discussed. This week, we're going to return to politics itself, and discuss the nature of the ongoing conflict between Guntram and Chilperic. It's important we discuss how this tepid war has been going, because two events are about to change everything. We'll discuss one, the arrival of the usurper Gundervold, next week, but this week we'll discuss arguably the most important one, the birth of Chilperic's son and heir, in episode 36, Faints and Jabs. Let's start with an example of the kind of low-intensity, irregular warfare that was dominating this struggle. Gregory tells us that Chilperic, in an attempt to prevent quote-unquote infiltrators from entering the region around Paris, posted guards on the bridge over the river Orge. Gregory doesn't say it, but the implication seems clear that men from Guntram's kingdom had been sneaking across either to loot the countryside and leave before Chilperic's troops turn up, or sneak into cities and spy on the goings-on. This kind of conflict happening at the lowest level was probably the norm in the smouldering war between the two senior kings. But Chilperic was sick of it, posting guards as a way to prevent these occurrences, which were probably chipping away at his prestige. And posting guards doesn't seem like a massive deal. He was just protecting his lands. But there is one key thing to remember here. Merovingian nobles were always hungry for plunder. And the low-level raiding happening between Guntram and Chilperic was probably benefiting both sides in allowing these restless minor nobles to satisfy themselves without actually risking a major escalation. By posting guards, Chilperic was cutting off this avenue, thus making this conflict far more one-sided. The nobles of Guntram's kingdom had two options. Sit back and accept the loss of their ability to harry the countryside, with its associated loss of income and prestige, or escalate the conflict. They chose to escalate. A man named Escalpius made a daring night attack, taking Chilperic's guards by surprise and slaughtering them down to the last man. He then moved freely into the region and plundered the countryside. Now, Chilperic faced a much bigger blow to his prestige. Killing peasants and taking their stuff, well, that was one thing. But the wanton slaughter of his own men, well, that was an insult that Chilperic couldn't afford to take lying down. Chilperic announced a general mobilization, calling his nobles to collect an army and invade Guntram's kingdom en masse. This was a major escalation, and risked a return to all-out war between the two kingdoms. It was also not popular amongst his nobles, and several of his councillors apparently convinced him to back down and instead send an envoy to Guntram 
demanding he pay damages for the loss of men and materials. Guntram, surprisingly, paid up, and even more surprisingly, he asked for his brother's friendship. If you've gotten to this point and are asking, hold on, aren't these men major rivals at war? Well, I think that's a fair reaction. This whole situation is particularly revealing as it shows the odd, murky middle ground the conflict was sitting in. Chilperic had seized a bunch of Guntram's territory when the war had last flared up, and no doubt Guntram would like it back. Beyond this as well, if one managed to remove the other, their power in the realm would be unmatched. But neither was capable of doing this. Both were struggling with internal issues, were losing control of their noble class, were already struggling to administer their vast realms, and, of course, there was always the wild card of Childebert II's court in the east. We've already talked about how warfare was changing in this period, but this example also shows how the king's attitudes have changed. Both Chilperic and Guntram were willing to slither backwards out of this escalation, as long as it didn't affect their prestige too much. The real escalation was done by ambitious nobles, not by the kings themselves, though Chilperic's posting of guards was obviously a provocative move. Merovingian policy had rather rapidly become more conservative and cautious, and major conflicts would become more and more rare. Not rare by modern standards, it's best to make that clear, but rare by the standards of the early Merovingian period. It'll be up to the next generation, and the generation after that, of Merovingian kings to reignite the reputation of Merovingian kings on the battlefield. So, the conflict was becoming more internal and political, less stabby and conquesty. How did this work? Well, luckily, Gregory has a story for us to illustrate that as well. Chilperic, in 582 AD, moved to properly assert his control over the cities his nobles had taken from Guntram during the last major campaign. He appointed new counts from his court to the cities, and ordered that all taxes should now be paid to him. But this move was not met with widespread support, as it seems latent loyalty to Guntram remained in these areas. These struggles with sedition were a lot of what the Merovingian kings spent their time trying to control inside their own kingdoms. Each of the kings were constantly trying to quash potential rebellions and instill loyalty in their subjects as they, at the same time, were encouraging sedition and conspiracy amongst the subjects of their rival kings. This is the driving force behind a lot of the major internal political events we've discussed. The harrying of Tur to try to intimidate Gregory comes to mind, not to mention the trials of Praetextatus and Gregory, or the rebellions of Merovec and Guntramboso. All of these events can be traced back to Chilperic trying to remove disloyal elements from his own kingdom. The presence of powerful kings just across the border made doing this 
a never-ending struggle, but one that the kings had to engage in. You kind of feel a bit of sympathy for these mostly monstrous men when you realize the situation they were in. The most obvious solution to the issue is to mass an army and conquer your rivals, remove the ability for them to be a focal point for discontent in your kingdom. But you can't do that because there is too much discontent in your kingdom and you can't be sure of the loyalty of your followers. So you hold off, focusing instead on rooting out the disloyal elements in your own state. Doing so, however, makes you lose prestige as it looks like you're incapable of fighting your rival, which you mostly are, as well as allowing them the space to consolidate their position and spread more discontent amongst your subjects. On top of this, your heavy-handed efforts to remove disloyal nobles or bishops often ends up causing more discontent, and so on and so forth. As you can see, the kings of this period were basically stuck. This whole situation is exacerbated when you realize that the nobles, no matter whose kingdom they were a part of, had come to understand that they only profit if no one king gains too much power. See, if only one king ruled, then he'd put a stop to their raiding, and have much more power to stop their scheming and plotting as well. With multiple kings, there was always the threat that they could defect, essentially allowing them to play one against the other to maintain their own political advantages. With that, we get to the story of Charterius, Bishop of Perigot. As Chilperic was imposing his authority on his newly conquered territories, one of his counts, Nonicius, Count of Limoges, captured two men who were carrying letters from Charterius. In these letters were several insults about his new king Chilperic, including a complaint that the bishop had apparently, quote, fallen from heaven to hell, end quote, when his lands had shifted from Guntram to Chilperic. The Count, who had obvious incentive to both curry favour with Chilperic and weaken the existing power structure in the region, immediately passed these letters and the men he had captured to Chilperic. This is where things get interesting. Two important things to note before we continue with the story. First, Charterius was a bishop in a newly conquered region on the border with Guntram's lands. His sedition was a genuine threat to the security of these territories, but pushing him too far might make him defect anyway. Second, remember Chilperic had already tangled with the clergy twice over accusations towards a bishop, including his humiliation at the trial of Gregory. He, quite reasonably, would have been hesitant to push his luck a third time. So, Chilperic received the letters and the men, showing some restraint, which even Gregory notes. He sent some men to summon the bishop, not for a trial or with an accusation, just to quote 
find out whether or not the accusations against him were true. End quote. When Charterius appeared, he was confronted with the evidence. A bunch of seditious letters, apparently from him, a fact which the men who had been delivering them confirmed. Charterius denied the accusations and stood firm under Chilperic's questioning. In light of this, Chilperic asked the men who had given them the letters. They responded it was a deacon of Charterius's church named Frontinus. Charterius claimed immediately that Frontinus was his enemy, constantly seeking to undermine and attack him. Chilperic then summoned Frontinus, who was quickly put to question as well. The deacon admitted that he had in fact written the letters, but only because Charterius had told him to do so. Charterius countered that the deacon was constantly plotting to remove him from his bishopric, obviously implying that he wanted the seat for himself and that all of this was simply a ruse. Unable to know for sure who was telling the truth, Chilperic backed out of the situation. He allowed Charterius to return to his diocese with all honour, but also asked the bishop to pardon the deacon. Basically, a return to the status quo. So, who was actually lying? Well, like Chilperic, we have no way of knowing for sure. We've seen plenty of examples of deacons plotting to remove and replace their bishops. Gregory himself faced almost exactly this situation. But that doesn't necessarily mean Frontinus did this. There is no concrete evidence and literally only one suspicious circumstance. On the flip side, accusing an underling was probably the easiest way out of the situation for Charterius and thus the most logical move to make if he was, in fact, guilty. It is odd for him to order a deacon to write dangerous letters on his behalf, but not enough to definitely determine Frontinus's guilt. It might have just been a safety mechanism, so, if caught, Charterius could do exactly what he did, and frame his deacon while escaping blame himself. Do you begin to see the quagmire Chilperic and other kings in similar situations faced? How do you know who is disloyal? And how do you remove them without angering other powerful elements in the state, like the church? A younger and more hot-headed Chilperic might have dove into a tussle to assert his authority by removing the bishop. But Chilperic here is really starting to show his age. Backing out and letting both of them go was the safest option, though also the one where he stands to gain nothing. In an interesting twist, the only concession he pulls out of Charterius is a promise that the bishop will pray for Chilperic's immortal soul. Just like his father Clothar had done in his later years with Radegund, Chilperic was clearly starting to feel his age. He was about 43 and had been king for 31 years. Clearly worried about his immortal soul, Chilperic was looking for some insurance. 
The last thing we're going to talk about today is the birth of Chilperic's son, because the change it makes is revealing, very revealing. Remember, after Fredegund's two sons had died of illness, she had killed Chilperic's last son, Clovis. Chilperic had let her do this, for what reason is up for debate, but he was left with no legitimate heirs. It is definitely no coincidence that Chilperic and the court of Childebert II reached an accord around this time. Chilperic might have wanted more power for himself, and was willing to sacrifice a lot and do some pretty shady stuff for it, but he did want the Merovingian line to continue after him. Childebert, the son of his most hated rival Sigebert, was now his only option. But Guntram was also childless, and this fact was a large part of his original alliance with Childebert II. Both of these senior kings needed this young boy, now a teenager, and importantly, both wanted to influence him and his decisions. For years now, Chilperic's court had been at the centre of kingly politics, and both of his uncles vied for influence over the future of their dynasty. But the birth of another son to Chilperic and Fredegund changed all of that. Chilperic didn't need Childebert in the same way now. He wasn't going to toss their alliance away. The teenage king was still an important insurance policy. But neither was he key to Chilperic's future plans anymore. This birth would have a ripple effect across the Merovingian courts. Let's break it down. Brunhild's anti-Chilperic faction would be strengthened in the east, allowing her to gain more power just as her son is nearing his age of majority. Once she had this control, she'd start her purges. Guntram, on the other hand, still childless, now needed Childebert more than ever, and his nephew knew it, and would later pull major concessions out of his uncle in return for a reconciliation. Those concessions would shape the kingdoms for a generation. And finally, in the court of Chilperic, Fredegund was plotting. With a son, her position wasn't assured. The boy could still die. Plenty had before. But it was strengthened. All she needed was one lever, one opportunity, one son, through which she could rule. The boy being so young would cause her untold issues, but Fredegund was willing to face them as long as she managed to cling to power. We have yet to see her most brilliant political manoeuvres. Before all that though, a stranger is going to come from overseas and cause a crisis, the likes of which the Merovingian kingdoms haven't seen in decades. Gundervold is on his way. The Gundervold crisis is a major event in the history of the Merovingian kingdoms, and will take a lot of explaining and exploration. We're going to dive in next week, 
but the likelihood it will take more than one episode to cover properly is pretty high. If you've been enjoying the complicated political games and dramatic moments, then, well, I've got a treat for you. I'll see you then.